Hi, I'm Chuck Quinley. Welcome to Thread, Season 3, Episode 4. Thread is God's Word tying together all the pieces of your life as a spiritual leader. It's a verse-by-verse study for leaders from the Bible, and we're going to follow the example of Jesus and his early leaders to learn how to leave a positive mark on the lives of other people. In Season 3, we're moving through 2 Corinthians, and today's lesson covers chapter 1, verses 15 through 22. I wish you could see where I am today. Uh, I move around the world, and today I find myself in Orange Beach, Alabama. You don't usually think of Alabama when you think of the beach, but the Gulf of Mexico is here, and it is an absolutely gorgeous beach. And we saw dolphins this morning from our balcony, and I'm here with our family and some friends, and we were having a discussion this morning as we did devotions, and we talked about our need for a true friend, even one more friend. You know, I'm rich in friends, and my life has gone in a beautiful direction, and pretty much everything amazing about my life, I can point to a relationship because that's how God gets things done. So I have been collecting amazing people as friends all my life, and I've been avoiding the kind of people I didn't want to be friends with all my life. And so now I find myself with this wonderfully curated uh, group of friends. Now, I'm willing to minister to all kinds of people, but uh, helping somebody out and trying to be there for somebody and uh, you know offering them a hand up, it's not always a relationship. It's a kind of relationship. But you know a lot of those can really be one-sided. And but I'm talking about you know the kind of friend that feeds you, that you're a friend with them, your hearts are one, and you just draw from each other. And you know it's hard. You're not going to have millions of these. And when you can get a hold of a great friend. You know, God bless you. Cherish this person and don't ever do anything that could mess that up. The Bible tells us that the world is basically a moral universe and it is held together by promises. Some of these promises are written, we call them contracts. Others of these promises are spoken, and that is everything from your marriage vow where you speak that you will never cheat on each other and that no matter how hard life uh, attacks you, you will hold together and you'll bring your best self to this marriage and you will be loyal and faithful to each other. So that's a spoken promise. Um, I will pick you up at 6 o'clock is also a spoken promise. And then there is a huge collection of unspoken, unwritten promises just assumed where that we have expectations in our relationships with people. And we might say, you know, you're my mother, you're supposed to whatever. Or the mother might say, you're my child, you're supposed to something. And it's not that we all raised our hand and swore to do these things. It's just the nature of our position in the relationship We assume things from the other person, and sometimes that's a valid assumption, and they would also agree with it. And in other times, they didn't agree with it at all, and so we have misunderstandings. But basically, all of the pain and pleasure in the world comes from 
the making and keeping of promises or the making and breaking of promises. If you want a happy marriage is built on lots and lots of promises, not just the the wedding vow. That's the huge foundational promise. But all the other promises, you know, I will do my part of the work and you won't have to remind me to do this and that. And, you know, it's your birthday. I'm supposed to, although I don't swear to this, I'm supposed to remember that and try to do something special for you. And, you know, these are understood promises. And if I keep them, even better, if I do even more than you think I'm going to do because of the expectation that, wow, I get extra points for that. And you're going to feel really great. And then if somebody goes below the promise level or completely breaks the promise, you know, one of the worst of which is to cheat on your partner. Uh, it not only is a knife in the heart of your partner, but if you have children, if there are others around you, and, you know, it hurts everybody. And so, you know, the, when you break a promise, you know, sometimes nations go to war because of a broken promise. But if you are going to have relationships, it's only because you are willing to make promises and keep them. So let's look at that for just a minute. Uh, Because this is a lesson about relationships and about the ultimate relationship that we have with God and through that all the other relationships that we have with humans. Now, in order to even have a relationship, first of all, I have to be willing to make a promise. Uh, Let's say you're trying to become a friend with somebody and you say, hey, let's meet at the library. We're in the same class. Let's meet at the library and study at three o'clock. And they say, oh, you know, I don't really like to make promises. And you say, "Okay, how about four o'clock? Well, you know, know, I'd rather not commit myself. You say, "Okay." well, hey, you want to play soccer with us tomorrow? Maybe might be there, but I don't want to promise. And if they keep doing that, you're not going to know how to have a relationship with them. Because they're sort of giving you a signal, you know, if I'm not willing to commit myself to you at any level, make any form of promise to you, uh, let's sit together at lunch tomorrow, anything. If I'm not willing to make any level of promise with you, we simply can't have a relationship. I have to be willing to put myself out there and say a thing and say that I commit to it. I have to be willing to do that. And then the second part of it is, having made the promise, I have to now commit to keep my promise, even though it costs me something. And, you know, it's easy to see how this ties into our human relationships. Uh, But it's also a big part about the distinctively Christian concept of having a personal relationship with God as our Father. You mustn't get the idea that, well, it's okay. All religions believe that. They don't. You know, we are from, on top of that, we are from an ancient religion, like all the world faiths. And I don't think there is any expectation, for example, in Islam, that you should have this warm, loving, cozy relationship with Allah. He's big. He's high. He's righteous. He's, you know, it's it's his mercies that you don't get squished like a bug every single day for all the bad things about you. So that's good enough, but that he would want you to call him father and that you could relate to him intimately, even, you know, as Jesus called him daddy, Abba, uh, that you would call God Papa or something close like that. This is not a normal world religion idea, you know, and the other religions are primarily, um, 
not monotheistic. So they're going to believe in lots of gods. And these gods are not people you'd want to be friends with. They're gods of destruction and blood. And that one is a god of sensuality. And that one is, and you know, they all do their thing and uh, you go to them and do a deal, but you're not expecting to be close to them emotionally. So there's this Christian idea about a relationship. It's even a doctrine, you know, with an evangelical, we'll say it's not about a religion. You you don't have to become a Christian to know Jesus. It's about a relationship. It's not about, did you join a church? Did you go through their catechism class? Did you follow their traditions? That's another thing. That's a human thing called Christianity. But the walk with God, the knowledge of God and entering into a covenant relationship with God, that's a, that's a whole new idea. It's a big idea. So, and actually relationship is what brought this whole book into existence. And this chapter that we're in, in these verses, uh, are grounded in a relationship. Paul is concerned about the status of his relationship with the brothers and sisters who live in the port city of Corinth. Now, Corinth was a notoriously um, corrupt city. It was sensual. Even their religion was, were basically, their rites were basically orgies done in front of phallic statues. And they had temple prostitutes that were there for that purpose. And then you just keep rolling this into every dimension of their life. It was about big money, about drunkenness. About you know, is everything in a debauched lifestyle, and so much so that this town came to have a, you know, a um, like a slang that they used in the culture to go Corinthianize. It was just sort of go crazy, you know, be promiscuous, sleep with everything that walks, and just go nuts as far as this world and sensual pleasure goes. Don't hold back, and that's Corinth. So, you know, if you're going to plant a church in Corinth and you're going to lead people out of that lifestyle, there are going to be some necessary issues that you're going to have to deal with to help them transition from having the mindset and value system and habits of worldly, proud, morally discredited people and bring them into alignment with the way God thinks and the value system of the kingdom of God. But Paul has done this. Paul and Timothy have planted this church, and they have poured so much love and energy. Paul loves these people. He, they're almost all Gentiles, and he has invested so much of his heart and his energy in ministering to them to try to line them up with Christ. But they just continue to think and behave like the people of this world. Uh, at least there's a, there are people in the church that are like that. And it just brings about this necessary conflict with Paul in his parental role toward them. You know, it's like having a a teenager that's gone wild. And Paul's not willing, like a bad parent, to just throw his hands up and say, well, it's your life. Do what you want with it. He's saying, no, I love you too much for you to do what you want with your life. You are headed to destruction, and I am going to get in your way, and I'm taking your keys, and I'm going to wrestle with you about this. I'm willing to have a conflict with you about this. And this relationship is really in peril. And finally, he put his thoughts in a letter, which we do not have, called the severe letter. And he just laid it out. He said, here are the principles that you are violating. And he laid it all down. 
And then there was this big meeting scheduled to have a showdown. And because there are some people in the church that are very fleshly, they want to be leaders. They have no spiritual qualification for being leaders, but that all the more, you know, they can't see that. And so they're just carnal people that somehow got into this church and they are braggarts and, and big mouth people. And so they called and there's this big meeting set and Paul didn't show up. So those people are criticizing him and they're saying, I see he's not a man of his word or he would have come to our big showdown. And so Paul begins, begins this section of scripture, uh, writing to carefully defend his actions But then his mind gets sidetracked, and some of Paul's best thoughts come as sort of a rabbit trail in his thinking. He'll start off to say something in a very clear, straightforward way, and then he'll think about Jesus as his model and how the life of Jesus applies to this situation, and it's like a rabbit in front of him. He just takes off after that thought. And fortunately for us, that's what happens in this passage, or we would just be reading an old, you know, an old discussion between Paul and this church. But he takes off on this thought about relationship and relationship with God and promise making and promise keeping. And he begins in verse 17 and he admits, he says, yep, the people of this world often say the opposite of what they do. Sometimes they make promises and they don't even attempt to keep them. But God isn't like that, and so we mustn't be that way either as his children. People have to be able to trust our word, and Paul says, I am a man of my word. And then he begins to think about our relationship with God the Father, that it's amazing that there's a relationship at all, and that really the only reason we even have a relationship with God is because he has been willing to make promises to us. Some say 30,000 promises in the Bible alone have been made by God. And in verse 18, Paul says, God can be absolutely trusted to keep his promises. He never makes a promise lightly. He speaks very plainly when he makes a promise. It doesn't have a lot of fuzzy language to it. He just says the promise and he's willing to enter into it and to bind himself and once he, he speaks a promise, God is committed to keep those promises, every single one of them. Then he gets into verse 19 and he says, actually, the whole reason that Jesus came into this world was to be the fulfillment of God's promises. He comes with a list of these promises because God made promises to Abraham, to David, to Solomon, to so many others in the Old Testament. And Jesus comes with a list of promises, and he says, I'm here to fulfill all these promises. And so verse 20 says it like this. All the promises, all the promises of God in Jesus are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. God has come in Christ to keep his promises. But the problem in our relationship is not a problem with God. He is the one party in this relationship who is absolutely consistent. God cares about nothing more than this relationship with us. Humans, on the other hand, have many priorities. We have many loyalties, and those loyalties are in competition 
with our relationship toward God. And the highest of our loyalties is, unfortunately, loyalty to ourself. Me, 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 my favorite person, me. And loyalty to our comfort. We don't like to be uncomfortable. And so mankind has broken most of the promises that have ever been made to God. This human faithlessness and constant promise breaking. It's our number one issue that is standing in the way of any of us having a true and meaningful relationship with our Heavenly Father. We're just a mess. And who could trust us as a covenant partner? You know, I know my, I don't, I wouldn't say I have a lot of regrets in my life and I try not to go down that road in my mind. But every one of my regrets, if I had to say them, they're all about my own failure to keep my promise to God. It may be a word I promised, or it may just be the way I know I'm supposed to live as his child, the way I can live, because none of this is above us. And so I know that every one of my personal failures, if I, if I counted them, it would just get me so down. And, uh, I know, you know I'm the problem in the closeness of our relationship with God. It's not that God is far from me or God is not doing his part. He is making and keeping promises and he will never, ever break one. And Paul says, thank God he sent Jesus to us because it even takes God to allow our, you know, it's like this. Thankfully, God is invested in our relationship enough for both of us. And so he sent Jesus to bring us into relationship with the Father, not just in theory, but that we can have a true relationship, one that is not just meaningful to us. That's where we always go with this, you know, make my life even happier. Yes, I will be so happy. I'll be so blessed. You know, any moment that I'm near the Lord, all my problems go away and I am just in absolute bliss whenever he is present. The the biggest, brightest, best moments of my life are when the presence of God is just broken in and I've been in a car or the shower or walking down the street and suddenly he is there and I feel him and I am whole and I am complete and I am made for this. And uh, so, yes, on the on my selfish side of this equation, yes, 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 I want a meaningful, life-giving relationship with God, and I find it through Jesus. On the other hand, I want God to find it meaningful. I want Him to be encouraged. I want Him to be blessed. I want Him to be so happy that He sent Jesus because this child over here is giving him the most love. It's imperfect, but I want God to feel my love for him. I want him to know that you know I want this relationship. I am hungry for it. I am thirsty for it. I want to walk with you, Father. And so Paul is saying, God sent Jesus so the relationship can be real. So in order to do that, I need help. He has to do things in in me to allow this relationship to become what it can be. And I'm so grateful to him for that. 
So it begins with substitution. Christ goes on the cross, and later there's a beautiful passage, and I'll try not to get too much into that. But the idea is that Jesus exchanges places with us on the cross and that we can put on Christ. And we can become men and women in Christ. And we can know who Christ is because it's Christ in us. Almost like a, a big, mm, I have a doctorate. And so when we, when we do big uh, university graduations, I get to wear this thing that I never wear. It's heavy. And I put this, this massive cape with three stripes on my arm. And I feel the weight of it when it goes down on me. And that's like putting on Christ. I'm wrapped up in Christ. And my identity is, so when anybody sees me in graduation, I'm in that part of the line that has the three-stripe people. And the colors that my gown, uh, my hood on my gown, they say what I studied. And uh, like where my victories are academically. So in Christ, I am wrapped up in Christ. The angels see it. The demons see it. I am a man in Christ. It is how the Father sees me. And in Christ, I can die to myself and I can enter into Christ. And the Father is going to give me four great gifts. And these gifts will enable me to make and keep promises to him and to live the fully human life that he intended as he planned my creation and yours. So let's look at the four big gifts God is going to give us so that our relationship can be a true one with him. Verse 21. First of all, he said he established us in Christ. Uh, and it's what I just was talking about. We get to wrap up Christ. My identity is in Christ. Everything perfect about Christ is now about me. And here we can really thank the Apostle Paul because he does more work uh, theologically and conceptually. He does more work on this concept about being a man in Christ, being hidden in Christ, being recreated in Christ. And he gives us that. So uh, we could literally take an entire year, and maybe I'll do that one day, and just study with you who we are in Christ. And if you can come to believe that that's your new identity and stop believing your old lying identity and believe what God says about who you are now, now that you are in Christ, because it's not the same, it's, it's a gift. He gave us all this. Well, let me give you an example of how this works out. Maybe you've heard me share this. I don't know. About, let's say, three years into my Christian life, I am faced with my own failure, and I'm trying to live up to God, and I was a lot more guilt-driven back then and ought and should. And uh, and so I would go down to pray, and as I would kneel to pray, my prayers generally started with uh, repentance. So I would say, oh, God, I'm so sorry I don't pray like I should and haven't been reading my Bible like I should. And I, and I'm, you know, but I'm here to pray, and I'm going to try to pray. I'm so sorry, Lord, I didn't do this. I was so sorry. And I, you know, that was my normal way to start my prayer. And then one day I had this thought as I did it, and as I knelt to pray, and I got right into like my third groveling low word. I thought, this has to be the most like discouraging hour of God's life. When I was like, oh no, He's going to pray again. Watch Him grovel. And, you know, because I'm just, my face is in there, and, oh, God, oh, God, I'm terrible. Oh, God, help me. Oh, God, change me. Oh, God. And I just thought, this has to really bum God out to have to sit through this. So I sat back, and I said, all right, what does the Bible say about me? And it's who I am in Christ. So instead of saying, oh, God, help me pray more. Oh, God, I'm sorry I'm not praying more. 
I just started saying, I am a praying man. I am a praying man in Jesus Christ already. So now I will pray. You know, knowing who you are in Christ, it just changes everything. But you got to start thinking it and you got to believe it. And it has to become your new identity. And so Paul says, this is the establishment of who we are. God has dug out a massive foundation and poured it with concrete and steel. It's who you are in Christ. And if you will get in there and let that cement harden all around you, you will be unmovable because it won't be if you're cool or if you're young enough or old enough or smart enough, rich enough, you're handsome enough or, you know, your body image is all perfect. You'll get past all that and it'll be, I am who I am in Christ. And you live by that and you stand on it. And uh, we'll come back to this in another lesson. But this is the, if I try my very best, my first thought when I open my eyes in the morning is I am a man in Christ. I am a child of God. And I start telling myself who I am. So Paul said, it's the first of the great gifts. Through Jesus, we are wrapped up in Christ and we become men and women in Christ. He said, then he gives us the second gift. He has anointed us. This is verse 21. He has anointed us. He has rubbed the oil of the Holy Spirit all over us. And now we have this throbbing energy of the life of God that authorizes us and empowers us. And it gets other people to, it gets on other people. When we, when we get around other people and we start interacting with them, we're oily, you know, we've got God's fragrance of Christ oil and it gets on other people and it affects them. And so if we can come to have faith and, and if you want to be a minister, that's what this whole study is about. If you can learn to have faith in this power and trust and use your anointing, it will cause it to grow and your impact on other people will become much, much more effective. You are anointed. You've got oil all over you, authorizing you and empowering you to act on God's behalf in the world. He said, verse 22, he gives you a third gift. He seals you. And this sealing is uh, like a stamp. He's got this massive, invisible to us, but visible to the spirit world, stamp in the middle of our forehead, child of God, property of Jehovah God. We are marked on our forehead by God. We are marked on our hand, and that means my work. Everything I do with my life energy and with my time, it all belongs to God. It is all for God. And that's the, you know, the mockery of this is in the mark of the beast, where the beast physically has humans on the earth in the book of Revelation, accept this stamp, property of the beast. I am loyal to the beast on their forehead. He's just copying what God has done. But God has done that for you. You're not like the other people you see as you walk down the street. You have a seal stamped on you through Jesus by the Father. Angels see it, demons see it, and you should wear it proudly, and you should imagine that everyone in the world can see it. You have been chosen and selected by God. You are now an insider. This is the work of the Father. He does this so we can become promise makers and promise keepers, that you can be secure knowing that you've been stamped forever. And that seal is about who I am now.
And who I am is more important than what I do. You know, what I do should flow from who I am in Christ and who I am in myself as a unique creation of God. And finally, he says, a fourth gift the Father has given us is he's given us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee on the keeping of the rest of his promises. Because God has fulfilled many of his promises in Jesus Christ, but there are still dozens of promises not yet fulfilled. Now, some of these are things like promises that the gospel will reach every ethnic group and language in the world. And others of these promises are very personal. He has in my in my my case he has promised me that he'll be with me in my death and that I will open my eyes on the other side of that experience and I will be in his presence he has promised that he will continue his work of refinement in me until I'm like him he promised that one day I would see him face to face with my eyes in a real world and he hasn't had the chance to keep any of these promises yet but the daily activity of the holy spirit in my life is a huge deposit guaranteeing the rest of the promises. Even if I have to face persecution in this life, even if I have to lose for him, even if I have to meet a horrible death in the meanwhile, even if I have to go through trials of many kinds, the greatest of which is the trial of my own personal failure, even when he's been so good to me. But in all of that, the work of the Holy Spirit tells me God is not finished with me and he will continue to work with me. He will break my evil spirit. He will cause his good spirit to take me over. He will cause me to rise up when I fail and he will renew my covenant with him because he is still holding the line and he has not given up on me. His promises to us are forever and he will not forget it. He's committed to our relationship and he will be with us so that we can be faithful to him as well. You know, the first thing in our lives as ministers is not our work for the church, The first thing is our personal relationship with the Father. Everything good in your ministry has to flow from the health of your relationship with God. So prioritize the walk that you have with the Lord. Go to Him again. Begin to make fresh promises. Keep those promises. And take up these four amazing gifts from God. Take a look at this passage again. Verses 21 and 22. Pray slowly over that and let it sink down into your heart. That's all for now. If you're enjoying Thread, how about sharing the podcast with your friends? You can just use the button in the player on your screen. And also, if you don't mind, would you leave a comment in the iTunes feed? And that helps us a lot so that other people can find the podcast. We've got lots of free resources on top of that. Just check out MediaLightOnline.com. I've got online courses I've developed that will help you find God's will and grow in it personally, spiritually, and as a leader. And we want to work with you to improve your communication skills 10 times. So anything we can, we'll pour it into you because you are the light of the world. So expect God to use you this week. 